Amen. Beautiful music. Thank you, Rachel, for playing that. If you're here in Galatians chapter 6, I've said recently that uh, being the new pastor here for, I guess, only about seven or eight weeks now, I've been trying to get to some messages that I consider to be a little bit foundational for us as a church to cast a vision going forward. And some of those have been every week, some have not. We took some time to teach through Mark chapter number eight. Then we had Easter Sunday and preached on the resurrection. Then we had the memorial service and preached about heaven. But the message this morning is one that I've been wanting to get to for just a little bit. We actually preach from Galatians chapter 6, probably about a month and a half ago. And the key text verse that morning was verse number 2, which tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how there's not a text in the Bible that specifically tells us what the law of Christ is. But however, we know that Jesus Christ said all of the Old Testament law and all of the rituals and all of the formalism was really built upon two things. When Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus is telling us if we're able to love God and love people, the rest of those commandments and teachings of the Word of God will fall into place because they're really built upon those two things. And obviously, we're all sinners and we struggle to keep that. But as we come down to verse number 10, it sort of completes the thought of verse number 2 when we're told as Christians to bear one another's burdens. And it gives us a couple of principles. It says, if we have opportunity, let us do good unto all Men, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Here, first of all, the word of God gives us the principle that if we have an opportunity to do good, we have a responsibility to do something good. I think I have a little bit more notes than I usually have this morning, so there's sections that I'll read, and hopefully the Lord will give you a blessing to this. The Word of God tells us that if we know to do good, yet fail to do the good we had opportunity to do, that this is actually sinful. I'll read you a few verses in way of introduction from James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Some famous verses, the Word of God says this, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. When it says go to now, it's saying take heed now, be careful, use caution. For if you would brag about what you are to do in the future and say, well, I'm going to travel to this city and I'm going to start a business and I'm going to trade and I'm going to gain wealth. It says be careful when you boast about future plans. Why? Verse 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Life is short. And when we brag about future plans, if we fail to say, well, if God wills, I will do this, we are failing to give God the glory and failing to give God the credit that unless he blesses it, it's not going to happen. Verse 15. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. There's an old saying where someone talks about their future plans and they say, well, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Next year, we're going to plant these crops. We're going to get this done. It's scriptural to acknowledge whether or not God wills or blesses or allows us to carry out our future plans when we talk about them because we are not in control. Then the text says, but now you are rejoicing in your boastings. You're pridefully bragging about your future plans and you're rejoicing in them, not in God and in God's will. And he says all such rejoicing is evil. It's actually sinful to not credit, well, if God allows me to do this, then I will do it. Verse 17, interestingly, there seems to kind of change topics, but it really all fits together with that teaching and with what the book of James has been telling us about what is right and what is wrong. And the chapter talks about earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Verse 17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In context, it's talking about acknowledging God and how we need His blessing to be able to carry out His future plans, but it really applies to the whole teachings of that book and really all of the Bible. It says if we know to do good and fail to do good, then it is sin. 
there is sins that we commit, but there's also sins that are credited to us as sins of omission, meaning we knew we were supposed to do something, yet we failed to do it. In the Old Testament law, Leviticus 5.1 has another interesting verse. It says, And if a soul sin, and hear the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he hath seen or known of it, if he do not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. This verse, though worded a little bit oddly, speaks of being a witness to something that happened. Being under oath, taking a solemn oath to tell the truth, as we would say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and then failing to tell what you know, and then the Bible says there in the Old Testament law, you would then bear in the iniquity. If you knew something that happened in the situation, you swore to tell the truth, but you withheld some of it, you would bear in sin if you failed to do what you knew you had a responsibility to do. Galatians 6, nine tells us not to be weary in well-doing. That happens to us a lot, doesn't it? It's discouraging. We try to do good. We try to love people. We try to serve God. Our motives we think are pure, and then people reject us. Then people don't want to receive God. Then we get tired. Then we feel like we have reached out to someone, loved them, invested in them, and they turn their backs on God, but we take it as them turning their backs on us. But Paul says, do not be weary in well-doing. Keep going forward. Keep being faithful. Keep serving God. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. We have a promise in that verse, a precious promise from God, that if we continue doing good and continue in well-doing that He has called us to do, we will reap in due season when God has appointed for us to reap if we faint not. Some of that reaping may take place in heaven. Some of it we may never see on this earth. The good that came about of us doing good. But God says, it's not in vain. Do not be weary. Remember, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15 says, for your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So verse 9 talks about well-doing. God has called us to do good, to do good things, for other people, not just to serve God, but the love of God is manifest to those around us as we do good things for them. We show them the love of Christ. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to be giving and caring, seeking to love and to do good things for other people. Verse 10 then teaches us a proximity principle. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good. Let us do good unto all men. Let us strive this morning to live by these words. If God has given us an opportunity to do something good for someone, He's also given us a responsibility to do something good for them. Give good things to other people. Be a blessing. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be, let me live for others that I may live like Thee. But then Paul makes this distinction. And he uses a word. He says, if you have opportunity to do good things for people, do it to all men. Then he says, but especially, especially, this word means chiefly. It means most of all. Most of all, let us do good unto them who are of the household of faith. You might tell your children, respect everyone. But this is your mother. You're really supposed to respect her. You see the principle, it's doing good to everyone. But Paul says, remember, if another person is of the household of faith, they are your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And may you especially look to do good things for them. Sadly, Christians are too often identified by their divisions. And personally, I don't always think that that is a bad thing. I believe we should be independent as a church and serve the Lord as the Lord leads us and guides us to serve Him. You in your home have a responsibility to lead, and it may be different than how I lead in my home and the particular decisions you make on how the commandments of Scriptures are to be carried out. And one church may be different than another church and say, well, we're going to serve God in this lane. And another group of people may be slightly different and say, well, this is how we feel so we're going to serve God in that lane. So I believe that it's okay that we're independent and that we follow God as He leads, but we have to remember that just because we have some differences with other brothers or sisters in Christ or differences with other churches, it doesn't mean we're on different sides. 
it doesn't mean we're not all still the family of God. Sadly, sometimes Christians spend more time fighting each other than they do the enemies of God. There's a little story in Acts chapter 15 that illustrates this. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just let me read it. It's only a few verses. But it's the story of Paul and Barnabas and how they had a disagreement that led to a division into a separation. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have determined to preach the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed them from Pamphylia and went not back with them to the work. So Paul says to Barnabas, at this point in our missionaries' journeys, let's travel back and visit the churches we've started. Let's see how they do. And Barnabas says, that's a good idea. Let's, I know, let's take John with us. We know from other scriptures, this is referring to John Mark. He was also one of the disciples. He was involved in the missionary journeys. And the apostle Paul said, I don't think it's a good idea to take John Mark with us because he departed with us at, from us at one point and didn't go with us unto the work. In other words, they were in the middle of doing something in the work serving God and John Mark said, I quit. I'm going to depart. Paul got upset. He probably had a right to be upset. We're supposed to continue serving God, not quit, not turn our hand back from the plow. But there was a disagreement among two preachers and missionaries, men who loved God. And the one said, I know that he may have forsaken us at one point, but let's give him another chance. Let's take him with us. And Paul said, I don't want to. He's not trustworthy. So what did they do? Verse 39 says, And the contention was so sharp between them that they put, departed asunder one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. They had a division. They had a disagreement. And so they said, you know what? Let's settle it this way. Barnabas, you go on a missionary journey with John Mark. And Paul said, I'll go with Silas. And they went different places serving the Lord going forward, even though there was something they had a disagreement about. You see, disagreements between the children of God are nothing new. Ever since the book of Acts, there's been disagreements. There's been divisions. There's been groups that come together in conventions, and then they split, and then they split, and you end up with about six or seven different groups. And what I'm, I'm trying to say this morning is that it's not something new, and sometimes it's even necessary. In this particular example, perhaps Barnabas was vindicated because there's another place in the writings of the Apostle Paul where he's giving them instructions, and he says, take John Mark with you, for he is profitable unto the ministry. In other words, the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, persecuted the church of God. But they were willing to give him another chance. And even though John Mark had backslid and forsaken the work because someone was willing to be patient with him and kind and give him another opportunity, the Lord used him. And God gives us multiple opportunities when we fail him or else we would not be here this morning. So let us show grace to people. But what am I saying? Often as children of God, we'll see disagreements. We'll see divisions. And sometimes it's necessary the book of Jude, verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He said, I wanted to write to you of the common salvation, but things started coming to my attention, and it's necessary that I write unto you that you earnestly contend for the faith. Now, we, we hear about faith, as Andrew talked about this morning, but here when he refers to the faith, he's talking about the collection of doctrines that are given to us in the Word of God that we're to follow as a New Testament church that make up the faith. There are certain things that are so bedrock 
to the teachings of the Bible that if we were to not stand up for them, we would not be standing up for the truth. They're sometimes called the fundamentals of the faith, meaning if you were to take one of those doctrines away, you wouldn't even have a faith because you remove something that is so integral to Christianity. The Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. These are examples of things that we cannot give up and still even have a faith. We have to believe the Bible is the Word of God. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. We have to believe that He was sinless, Son of God, born of a virgin, because if we took those teachings out, the entire faith would be undermined. So sometimes there are things that are so important, we have to take a stand. We have to separate. We have to rebuke people who are teaching false doctrine. Earnestly contend for the faith. But there's also a verse in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen where Paul said, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. In other words, sometimes we have to contend for the faith and for the truth, but it's not what God has ordained that we be contentious that we'd be argumentative, that we'd be always looking to pick a fight. There are some people who, have you ever heard it said of someone, they're not happy unless they're miserable. There's some people who thrive on fighting. There's some people who thrive on having a cause, and they literally are looking for almost anything wrong with any other Christian or group of people they possibly can, so they can point out and see, say, they explained that differently than I did, so that means they're a heretic, and that means they're not even saved. <laughs> I've heard people say uh, what the, the prince of preachers is called Charles Spurgeon. He preached in England for decades to crowds and to thousands. And one preacher said, well, Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist and he smoked cigars and I wouldn't let, even let him preach in my pulpit. So well, I don't, God let him preach for 20 or 30 years. So there's no one who's perfect. And I may disagree with some of the things that Spurgeon said, but he still preached the gospel and he was still a servant of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying is too often we take our ammo and we turn it on each other and people who may be a little bit differently than we do and spend more time fighting each other than we do actually standing for the truth or fighting against the devil. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Jesus said there's one thing that will be the hallmark of Christianity that will allow the world to look at the group of people who are claiming to be Christians and say they really are the followers of Jesus Christ. They really are different. And that one characteristic is that we would have love one toward another. Christians loving other Christians is supposed to be the identifying mark of all Christianity, not even loving those who are lost. But Jesus said, as you love each other, people will know that you're my disciples. Because if I go to work and I tell people and I go out in the community and those who are lost and I say, I'm a Christian and God is love and you need to come to Jesus Christ. And then they see me have a relationship with Ronnie, who's my brother in Christ, and I hate him. And I say mean things about him. And we hate each other. That's going to give the name of Jesus Christ a bad name. And it will hurt our testimony because I'm claiming to represent Jesus Christ, but I'm not even loving my brother in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul believed in this principle so much that he said if you have something against another member of the church and it's a legal matter, he said don't take them to court. Don't sue them. It would be better for you to wrongfully suffer wrongdoing at their hand than to be such a bad testimony to the outside world that we sue each other in a civil court. He said, go to the church and let them sort it out. Go through what we would call mediation, but don't go in the realm of unsaved people in the world to people who don't even know God and fight each other there because it hurts the name of Christ. John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 14, I'll just read it. The Word of God tells us this very directly. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. One of the evidences of salvation is that we have a love for the brethren, is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you believe that you are saved, but it makes you upset to be around other Christians and you have hatred in your heart to them and you don't feel at home around other people of God, 
you might need to check your salvation because love for one another is supposed to accompany it so much so that he says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems. One that Paul addressed right away in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 was that they had divisions. He said, I hear reports, and I'm starting to believe it, that there's divisions among you. For one in the church says, I am of Paul. And the other one says, well, I am of Apollos. And another one says, I am of Cephas. In other words, Christians were being divided and split into different groups because they were identifying as followers of a particular preacher instead of all of them identifying as followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul corrected them. And he said, I wasn't crucified for you. Apollos wasn't crucified for you. Neither was Peter. There's one God and he died for you. And he says, it doesn't matter who has that position of under shepherd, who is used in your life to bring you to God. And leaders and preachers and teachers are God's gift to the church to help us. He says, But it doesn't matter really who's serving God. The true point is that Jesus Christ has died for us. He has saved us. And we are all members of the body of Christ. And he said, maybe I planted the seed. And then Apollos came along and watered. And another will later reap. But it is God that gives the increase. Let us not be divided based upon who our favorite preacher is. Let us not identify primarily as a disciple of a human leader, but identify primarily as followers of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there, here's another scripture that I reference quite often that illustrates this point so well. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. This again, the Apostle Paul, and he says, But I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Here Paul is speaking of how he's been persecuted for serving Jesus Christ. He's been put in bonds. In other words, he's been arrested. He's had his freedom taken away. Some of the epistles he wrote from a jail cell and had it delivered unto the church because it was not popular politically to serve Jesus Christ in the first century church. They faced persecution from the Roman government and even from the Jewish religious leaders. And and so he says that my bonds in Christ are manifest, are well known, both in the palace and in all other places. In other words, everyone knew and was talking about the fact Paul has been put in jail for preaching the gospel. Verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He said something was happening. Other people began to preach the gospel more and more boldly because of what happened to Paul. And he goes on to explain in a moment, for some of them, it was because they said, well, Paul's being persecuted, but God's going to deliver him, so I'm going to step up and preach more because Paul can't. But there was another group who didn't like Paul. And they took opportunity to speak more, to say, well, you know, look at what happened to Paul. He did some things wrong, and he's being punished. And all these things that may not be true, but as a part of their preaching against Paul, they also preached the gospel. They didn't even have a correct motive. What did Paul think about that? Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. You see, there it is in verse 16. He says, they're preaching Christ not even sincerely. They simply want to persecute me and add affliction to my bonds but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What do you think about that, Paul? Verse 18. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul said there's one simple fact that if I hear is happening, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to say, praise the Lord. I've got a reason to be happy. And that is if I hear that someone is preaching Jesus Christ. 
Even if their motive is wrong. Even if they're doing it to persecute me. If they're preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, I've got a reason to rejoice and to be thankful that someone is preaching Jesus Christ. There are churches all over the world and the country this morning that are different than our church. Some are different in big ways. Some are different in small ways. Maybe different from what I am, from what we are in some aspects. Yet the Apostle Paul tells us that if someone, if anyone, anywhere is standing up and preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, we have a reason to rejoice and to love them. And as we're looking to do good to all men, especially look to do good unto them. I personally think that it is sometimes shameful that we see the level of attacks and nasty things that Christians will say about other Christians, that preachers will say about other preachers in other churches. Will we be different from others? Yes, I'm sure we will be often. And we should be because we're supposed to not just go with the popular trends, but try to say, Lord, what is the best way we can follow you from the word of God? but also realizing that some things come down to tradition. Some things come down to they're not specifically laid out in the Word of God, and it's okay for churches to be different and follow God as God would have them to be. However, this and sometimes we'll have to take a stand for the truth because people attack the core doctrines of the Bible. However, this morning I want to say and proclaim, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you are like, If you are publicly proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven through grace, not works, you are my brother, you are my friend, I love you, you have given me a great reason to rejoice. And the Bible says that I should look to do good to all men whenever I have an opportunity, but especially I should look to do good things for you. If you're preaching Christ is the only way to heaven, I want to love you as a brother. I want to pray for you. I want to do the best that I can to be a friend to you. Churches using a different translation of the Bible, different musical styles or service schedules or standards of clothing, if they choose to be different than we are, that does not mean that they are not my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that they are my enemy. If they preach the gospel, they are my friend. Not only are they my friend, but they are my family. And they have given me a reason to rejoice. And I will try to obey the word of God and especially look to do good things for them, even above the people who are lost and do not know God. I have four siblings. All of them I love. I love them equally, I think. It just depends on the day. No, I'm just kidding. I'm supposed to love and respect everyone. But our dad always taught us, that's your family. Your best friend might move away, but that's your brother. That's your sister. Love them in a special way. Be best friends with them. And that's what the Word of God is telling us. Let's look to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2, another passage here about the first century church and how they were going through persecution and how they responded to it. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Yes, the first century church continued in the teaching from the Word of God. They continued in prayer, but they also continued in fellowship and breaking of bread. This was having meals together. This was being a family. This was being in each other's home and loving and supporting one another as members of the family of God. Verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to every man as they had need. I don't want to get distracted and take a detour here, but I do not believe that the Bible teaches socialism or communism, but rather this first century church in one spirit, one mind and unity, as they were being persecuted by outside forces, came together and said, you know what, if they take away from you and throw you in jail, I'll make sure that I give some of mine to you and you'll have enough. 
and there were people who did have goods and who did own private property and who had done well that were able to sell and trade and use that to voluntarily give to be a blessing to other people inside the church. It wasn't even just to anyone. They weren't going to homeless people on the street and giving away what they had. They were looking to brothers and sisters in Christ within the same church who had a specific need and they said, God's allowed me at this time to give to you and to help you. And it was a beautiful thing. Verse 46, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's what we find the first century church doing. We find them being a family, having unity, and doing good, yes, to all people, but especially they were looking to do good to those who were of the household of faith. I'd like to take a little bit of a a turn at this point in the message, one that perhaps does not come directly from the text, but I think it certainly applies from the verse that we read. As we look at the world around us today, as we see the news, one of the topics that comes up over and over again is racism and the state of things in our country today. It's nothing new to the history of the world, for in the first century church, things were even far worse than they are in America today. So I'd like to talk for a moment about how things were at the time of Jesus Christ and how people coming to Christ as Savior and obeying what was taught in Galatians 6.10 helped with the problems that that particular society was going through. When we are saved, we're told that we're all put into one family of Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to be split up based upon gender or race, but rather we're supposed to realize we're all part of the family of God. The Apostle Paul actually rebuked Peter because Peter was sharing meals with non-Jewish believers in that first century church and they were trying to break through and teach the Jews don't try to require the Gentiles who get saved to follow the Old Testament law. That is not necessary to come to salvation. Don't push that upon them. And so Peter was fellowshipping with the Gentiles, but then when certain of the leadership of the Jews came around, Peter was intimidated and he withdrew from the Gentiles for he was afraid of confrontation with people who would tell him, why are you fellowshipping with people who are not Jews? Why are you going outside of the racial bounds that are the norm in our society? And Paul rebuked him. And he said, don't do that. Don't withdraw from your brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they come from a different background. We are all one family in Jesus Christ. And by the way, I just want to say this morning, I love this church. I love this building. I love the people. I love each and every one of you who are here this morning. And I love that God has given us a place where we can come and we can be a family and we can have our differences, but we can look to take care of one another, love one another and do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Racism is a reality in our world, but it is one that will never, the end of racism will never be achieved politically or through the legislative process. For racism is a sin of the human heart, and therefore no law can be passed that will take it away. It also will not be ended through violence or through force. Neither will it be resolved by issuing denunciations against it. Unfortunately, many Christians today put their hope in the political process to solve such problems. And thus we debate the issue on the same level that the world does. Let me read to you for a moment. This is about that first century church and the cultural context in which it existed. There's a better way. The world of the first century church was littered with racism and oppression. In the mind of a first century Jew, Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Remember, Gentile simply means non-Jew. You have the Jewish race, then you have Africans, Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Asians, and all the other ones would make up what we call the Gentiles. When a Jew called a Gentile uncircumcised, it was a term he spit out with profound contempt. If a Jewish person married a Gentile in those days, the Jewish parents held a funeral service for their child, for in their eyes, their child was dead. It wasn't only one-sided, though, because on the other side, the Gentiles often regarded the Jews to be subhuman. Historically, it's a fact that the Jews have been oppressed more than any other people 
living under the thumb of one Gentile nation after another. Some of it we see in the Bible, some of it we see in history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and all the way to Adolf Hitler, people have irrationally hated the Jews, I believe, because they are associated with Jehovah God, because they are God's chosen people. We do not believe this morning in our church that the church has replaced Israel and that God has cast out His promises to them, but rather He is punishing them for a time and a season as they have rejected Him as Messiah. But even when He comes back to set up His kingdom, He will sit on the throne from Jerusalem and even the next kingdom He calls the New Jerusalem. And I believe that Israel has a right to the land which they occupy because God gave it to them. And people who surround them, such as the president of Iran, who said, our goal is to push Israel off of the map and into the sea. You cannot have peace with someone whose only one and only satisfactory goal would be to see your nation eradicated and your people killed. I'm not ashamed to say I believe that the Jews were God's chosen people. I believe He gave them the land. And I believe they have a right to build houses on the land they own and exist there in peace without facing violence. In all of human history, there has never been so much animosity, hatred, and violence between two groups of people as there has been between the Jew and the Gentile. But alas, here in the first century, there emerged a group of people on the planet who transcended this racial hostility. Here was a group of people who saw themselves not as members of a particular race, but as members of the same family. A family that was made up of Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, rich, poor, male, and female. What was this group? These were the first century Christians who saw themselves not primarily as members of a race or citizen of a nation, but rather as members of the family of God. The Roman world stood in awe as they began to see a group of people who used to hate each other come together and begin to love one another and do life together in the name of Jesus Christ. Watch them walking into the marketplace together, arm in arm, singing with joy in their hearts, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female. Look at them closely, Jews and Gentiles who used to not get along, now eating together, working together, greeting one another with a holy kiss, raising their children together, taking care of one another, marrying one another, and burying one another. This fact blew the circuitry of every person living in the first century. It shook the Roman Empire to its very foundations and no doubt changed the world. You see, the church of Jesus Christ was and is supposed to be today a classless society. Its members did not regard social status, color, or position. For them, there was no Jew or Greek in the body of Christ. There was no slave or free, rich or poor. To their minds, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, and poor no longer existed. They saw themselves as part of the same family, a new family, a new group, not of this world or from this world yet for this world to carry out the gospel. How was this possible? Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning that every problem we see in society, that every issue can be addressed by the fact that all men and women are sinners and Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And He can heal what is broken And the best thing for any society would be if people would come to Jesus Christ, begin to be discipled, and follow the teachings of the New Testament, and follow the direction of Galatians 6.10, let us do good unto all men, but especially they that be of the household of faith. After a mass shooting, someone posted somewhere, they said, well, we're giving our thoughts and prayers. And another one said, thoughts and prayers aren't going to fix this. In other words, one the person was saying, praying isn't going to do any good. You have to agree with my legislative opinions that the Bill of Rights has to be altered. That's what's going to fix it. But I tell you what, gun control is not going to fix sin in the human heart. The Second Amendment is not going to fix sin in the human heart. But Jesus Christ already fixed this when He died for our sins. And His invitation is open that we would repent and that we would believe in Him. And politics is not going to help our country, but Jesus Christ will. What does this mean for us today? We must remember Jesus Christ is the most unifying person in the universe. 
In John chapter 4, we see an illustration of what was happening in this day. Remember, the woman at the well was of Samaria. John 4 verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were generally considered in that day and age a half-breed because they were mixed group of people. And the Jews looked upon them with contempt, so much so that the woman was astounded that Jesus Christ would even deal with her, talk to her, have anything to do with her. She said, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But let me tell you what, Jesus Christ would deal with the Samaritans. Jesus will deal with anyone because Jesus loves all of us equally as human beings made in the image and likeness of God. That gives more context to the story of the Good Samaritan where there was a Jew who left Jerusalem and he was traveling on his way. He was attacked, he was beaten, he was stripped half naked, he was left on the side of the road and there came a Levite and he saw him and he passed by on the other side. There came a priest, he passed by and he saw him and he passed by on the other side. But then there came the one that the parable calls the Good Samaritan. And though the Jews did not want to help the man that was in the pit, the Good Samaritan looked, and despite it was someone of a different race that was at odds with his, he didn't pass by on the other side. He crossed the street. He picked him up. He took him to the inn. He said, if, if there's anything else that I owe you, put it on my account and I will pay it. And there we see a picture of Jesus Christ who died for every person and said, put it on my account. I will pay the penalty of sin and of death. And Jesus Christ wants every soul to be saved. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what country you're from or the color of your skin. Jesus died for you. He loves you and wants you to be saved. And so do I. The way to have unity in our country and in our world, the best way would be for men and women to be saved, be discipled and realize they are part of the same family and love each other. If God will help me, I'm on the last page. I'm going to try to slide all of this in and be done on time. Acts 17.26 is a fascinating verse. The Apostle Paul was preaching and he says this of God, "...and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth." Paul said, I'd like to remind you something. God has made of one blood all nations. You see, when you follow the Bible, when you get born, when you become born again, study the Bible, believe the Word of God, race, racism, prejudice, and hatred won't be a problem because the Word of God teaches us we're all related to Noah. We're all related to Adam. We actually and factually are all members of the same family. We come from the same forefathers. We all have a heartbeat that keeps us alive, blood in our veins, a brain, DNA, and skin color is just that. It's a color that's on the outside, but we are all human beings made in the image and likeness of God. I believe in being involved politically and doing what God would have you to do. And he says in, his, in the Old Testament, he told them, seek the welfare of the country whereof I have sent you. I simply believe we have to remember our hope is not in that process. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And while I'm, I'm thankful to be an American and that we have the freedoms that we have here, and we talked about, Ronnie did at the funeral of Edna, how that in the Middle East where they were traveling, they secretly studied their Bibles, and if they were caught, they would receive lashes, they would receive public humiliation and be deported with no mercy, simply because you read the Bible. I'm thankful this morning to God that He's placed me in a country where we can gather together with our freedoms and not be afraid of being thrown into prison. I'm glad. But it's also a fact, I'm not denying our country has had a lot of racial problems in its history. That's simply a fact. Marriage licenses, the government approving who can and can't be married to one another, it used to be left to the church in the days of George Washington. You would record it in the family Bible and then you would have your evidence and there would be some legal recourse for someone who mistreated their spouse, but they didn't go to the government and get permission to marry one another. It was first began to be instituted by the states to outlaw people of different races marrying each other. But the state has no right to forbid marriage that God does not forbid, nor to allow marriages that God does not allow. The Word of God defines marriage as one man and one woman for one lifetime, and it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court or the authorities say, anything else is not marriage. 
But in the Old Testament, we find a story where Moses married an Ethiopian woman. She was black. And you know what happened? Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses. And God smote Miriam and Aaron because of their complaints. And you know what God had to say about what Moses did? Nothing. He didn't say a word about it in the text. And the New Testament specifically says that if a woman's husband has died, she is free to be married to whomsoever she will, only in the Lord. He didn't say race. So you see these these forms of racism and tradition come not from the Word of God, they come from man. Richard Nixon famously, I guess infamously, decided it would be a good idea to record all of his phone calls within the White House. It led to Watergate and to him being impeached and admitting he had a plan, a part in things that were illegal. Well, some of those calls were not released until recent years and just within the past decade, I believe some of them were released and there was one where Richard Nixon was discussing abortion and he was saying abortion's wrong and it shouldn't exist. And then he said, but I know there's some times when abortion is necessary, such as if a white person and a black person become pregnant, then abortion would be necessary. In other words, to violate innocent human life in his eyes would be justified simply because it was a child of mixed race. And that's wrong. Slavery is evil anywhere it has ever occurred. When it happened in America, it was wrong. It happened. It also happened throughout entire history of the world by many countries, and everywhere it has existed, it has been wrong. And America did not get the issue of slavery correct at the beginning, but within the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you will find it declared that slavery is wrong. For it does not mention race, but it gives rights and due process to everyone who is a human being. And thankfully, by God's grace, we became the only nation in the history of the world to fight a war to end slavery. And God has given us much more peace than we had at that time. I also hope and pray that as I referenced what Richard Nixon said, I hope and pray that the legality of abortion would also be ended in our country. For the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights also declare abortion to be wrong because it gives due process and it gives rights to all human beings. And we should have known from the Word of God and common sense, but science has allowed us to look at a baby in the womb at five and a half weeks, have a heart beating and have their own DNA. And to know, we should be able to know that's a human being made in the image and likeness of God and they should have every legal protection that other human beings have. God gives a lot of grace. Those who have had an abortion, God will give grace to them. God will love them. But I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that it's okay for babies made in the image and likeness of God to be killed within the womb of their mother and have that be a legal thing to happen in our country. And if we would follow our founding documents, it would not be legal. We still find racism and sin in our country today. In 2016, during the presidential primaries, some groups in the states put together calls and they said, if you're white and you vote for Senator Cruz or Senator Rubio, you are betraying your race. What's that called? It's called racism. Not only racism, it's a sin. It's stupidity. It's looking at the shade of skin on the outside and thinking we're supposed to be split as tribes because of it. There's also racism on a lot of different sides. After President Trump was elected, he had people like Steve Harvey and Jim Brown to the White House to talk to them, gain their advice and point of view. And a political commentator, a black man on CNN, said uh, he, he ripped into them and said, well, Trump's just bringing in those mediocre Negroes to look at them and try to try to get some good publicity. He looked at people, and because they chose to have a conversation with the President of the United States, he called them mediocre and then identified them by the color of their skin. That's called racism. That's called wrong. In Charlottesville, back in 2016 or 17, they had a, a one of the most horrible things I've ever seen on the news, where they had groups of people who marched with torches and there were white people who were saying racist things against the Jews and they said they need to send every person of their skin color back to the country where they came from. Someone even took a car and drove it at a group of protesters and one person was killed and the woman who was killed was white. They don't, people who hate like that don't just hate people of different skin colors. They hate everyone who disagrees with them. 
what we saw on that day, and when we see things like that happen, that belief system, according to the Word of God, is evil. It's wicked. It doesn't even make sense. But it comes from the twisted heart of hatred that would hate people simply because they're of a different race. That thought process, by the way, comes straight from the teachings of evolution. And Charles Darwin, who said, well, one color is evolved farther than another color. And those who are darker haven't evolved as far. And yet that's what evolution is taught to children in schools today. I'll tell you what would make it better is if we would teach our children, you are made in the image and likeness of God. And every human being is. And every human being is your brother. And every human being is your sister. Brain surgeon Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson said, being a brain surgeon kind of helps you not to be racist because I've seen enough brains that I know they're all made up the same. It's not like we're different. Herman Cain was a, a businessman and CEO of Godfather Pizza and he said, when I grew up in the South, they had what was known back then as segregated water fountains. I even heard a preacher who's older in Sherman say he's old enough to remember in Sherman, Texas, when there was a water fountain that would be labeled as whites only. If you're not white, you're not allowed to drink this water. And Herman Cain was a little boy and he said he'd always seen that. He'd always been so curious. And one day he saw one of those water fountains and he looked this way and he looked that way and he ran over and he took a drink out of the white people water fountain. And he went back to, and he said, mom, it tasted the same as the water from the other one. What's the difference? You see, most of the time, little children, they're not actually racist until they're taught to be because it doesn't even make sense. Where will we find peace on earth today? From the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The angels came and they declared at what we celebrate as Christmas time. They said, the Messiah is here. He's to be born. And they declaimed, peace on earth. But it wasn't peace on earth because of Santa Claus and presence. It was announcing the presence of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And the fact that He was born to be our Savior. Many of Paul's epistles begin with the phrase, peace. I'm sorry, I lost my place in my notes. He begins his epistles with the phrase, Grace and peace. Grace and peace, but always in that order. Why? Because when will there be peace? When men and women accept the grace of Jesus Christ and His shed blood as the payment for our sins. We should love everyone, but the world will recognize us as children of God when we love each other as Christians. We should look to do good to all men when the opportunity arises, but especially when the opportunity arises to do something good for a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. What are some things we can do to especially love, take care of, and be a blessing to each other? In Galatians 6 verse 1, it says we can help someone who's overtaken in a fault. Verse 2 says we can bear each other's burdens. Verse 6 says we can help teach each other. Verse 9 says don't faint, keep doing well. And verse 10 says every time the opportunity arises to do something good for someone, do it. But especially when you have opportunity to do good for a brother or sister in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. One of the ladies are going to come in a moment and play the piano. And we'll just have a few moments of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that the message this morning would speak to our hearts. I pray that I would not be misunderstood in anything that I said this morning for my main point was to look at examples around us and to see that there's sin in our history and there's sin today. But what matters most of all is that people know Jesus Christ as Savior and your message that you died for all needs to be told to all, heard by all. And what a wonderful thing it would be for our world and our society if people would turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. Help us love all people. Help us look past our own prejudices. Help us love Christians who are serving God a little bit differently than we serve God. And help us look to do good to all people, and especially they of the household of faith. The music will play. Let's have a moment of prayer, and then we will be dismissed.